Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Interventional Endoscopist Podcast. Today, I will be talking about ERCP in the ASC. If you've listened to a few of my podcasts, you've kind of started to recognize the theme here. Um, I'm pretty passionate about endoscopy, and I'm pretty passionate about being able to do it cost-efficiently and, and safely in centers like the Ambulatory Surgical Center. Um, this could be a little bit of a controversial topic uh, for many people, and I think I understand where they would be coming from. You know, I think a lot of the naysayers would say that ERCP at an ambulatory surgical center is not uh, safe, it's not the right thing to do, um, and what if you have a complication? And I think they're all extremely, extremely valid criticisms and points, and I don't disagree with any of them. But I do think that there is a role for ERCP to be done safely in some of these outpatient centers. Um, historically in the U.S., similar to endoscopic ultrasound, and if you um, listen to episode number two, you know, you'll, some of the same themes are there, but historically in the U.S., this has not been a procedure done in the ASC. It's not one that's been thought of as safe, um, but financially also, in an ASC, it wouldn't make a lot of sense because of the cost of equipment, accessories, fluoro, all those type of things. And I kind of got this first idea, like, should we be doing ERCPs in the ASC right after I became a partner in our surgical center and I started doing EUSs there? And I said, well, why not? You know, what, what, what are some of the barriers to this and what are some of the issues? And I remember having a conversation with my... Um, territory manager from Boston Scientific at the time, they were in the process of going from SPI Legacy to Digital SPI or SPI DS. And, and I said, you know, <clears throat> we were finally learning how to use SPI Legacy well in our hospital. And that, this was just as the DS was coming out. In fact, a little known trick, if you remember that device and it had the little... Um, uh, catheter or the uh, fiber that fit inside the spy scope, a lot of times you couldn't get good visualization. But what people didn't realize is that on the part that connected to the light source, there would be this haze that developed. And we had an endotech whose name was Alan, uh, who worked with older scopes when he was in Oregon. And he used to use a pencil eraser to clean off the lenses after they were washed to get rid of the calcium. And so he started doing that in the spy legacy. And, and, and we actually got really nice images, like some of the clearest images I had seen after we started cleaning it his way. But anyway, I, that's a digression. But, you know, they were phasing this out. And I, and I asked him, I said, you know, what? where do you see legacy going? And, and they just kind of were like, we don't really know what we're going to do with it. Maybe it goes to third world countries. I said, what about potentially providing this to an ambulatory surgical center? And it wasn't something that, you know... Uh, people were really thinking of. I, I don't think anybody was opposed to it, but the, the, the um, I guess the kind of thought process of the time or the temperature of the time was that, you know, this is a procedure that need, doesn't need to be there in ASCs that it only needs to be done in hospitals. Well, you fast forward about five years later, you ended up with all this controversy about ERCP and infections, and you end up with, uh, you know, disposable scopes coming into the market, both by Boston Scientific and AMBU at the time. And, you know, the thought process is starting to change that, you know, maybe there is a role for this in other places. Um, so, you know, we, we, we had that conversation. It didn't really go anywhere. I right? you know my thought process was give me 
Spy Legacy let me start doing these ERCPs in the center without fluoro and, and, and kind of figure a way to do that. Um, so kind of the thought process of what procedures should be done, I'll get to in just a moment, but the context of why I think that doing these procedures can be beneficial or can be helpful in an ASC, again, mirrors a lot of the things I said about EUS, and if you haven't had a chance, please go back and listen to episode two. But basically, uh, time savings, efficiency savings, and if you do it right, there can be a cost savings. Um, you know, and, and, and I have to give credit to my uh, group that I belong to that, you know, we aren't your traditional endoscopy private practice group, and we're certainly not your traditional academic practice because, um, you know, we're, we are in private practice. But we have always kind of pushed the envelope in some unique ways, whether it be how you work with a hospital or how you work in an ASC. And, and I think being in that group as my first job really motivated me to kind of think of these things that I don't know that I would normally think of if I had gone the traditional route with a practice or a academic job. So some of the barriers obviously is cost, right? So when we talk about the cost of a duty and a scope, um, a new one can cost upwards of eighty to $100,000. Um, and the good news about it, though, is that it is compatible with your current existing platform. So if you're on a Fuji system or Olympus system, the scope can be compatible with what you already have. But the cost of the device, or the, uh, uh, sorry, the cost of the scope is so high that you would have to do a large number of these procedures to break even. Right, you should always try to look at break-even point being one to two years, and you know if you're looking at the current reimbursement of ERCP, if you look at it in the hospital, um, and I'm just pulling it up right here, um, and again I've got to credit Boston Scientific for their reimbursement guide, but if you look at the code for endoscopic retrograde clangiopancreatography diagnostic, including collection of specimens by brushing or washing when performed. That's uh, 43260. Uh, that's the CPT code. And, um, you know, the RVU, work RVU for the physicians, 5.85. Most people who are in employed positions are making about 70, $60 to $70 in RVU. So you're talking about, you know, roughly $400 bucks, uh, as, your, as your reimbursement. But if you look at doing this, what is a physician fee in facility if you're doing fee for service, not RVU? It's about three twenty, and if you you know, and if you look at it, um, and you, the reason I said in facility is because you're always doing it in a facility. You're not going to be doing this in the office. I at least not today. Um, but the hospital outpatient department or the hospital system they make about three thousand two hundred sixty one dollars Medicare. Um, an ASC can generate 1500 So, you know, a good rule of thumb is when you're kind of trying to calculate or talking to patients and they're asking you what's the cost differential between an ASC and a hospital, you're roughly looking at about half for the ASC compared to what a hospital gets. So $1,500 is your facility fee on a Medicare rate. Now, some people are lucky enough to get more money for private practices, uh, sorry, private insurers. Some people with Medicaid would make less than Medicare. So if you look at 1500 kind of as your, um, your baseline, you know, and that's, again, just the ERCP. You know, if you start talking about other procedures like, um, you know, 
EHL, et cetera, those things go up. But again, probably not something you're gonna be doing in the hospital, but I mean, sorry, in the ASC, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So if you look at $1,500, and then if you look at what is your cost to do a regular endoscopy? And in my experience and my opinion, a well-run endocenter should be having a cost per case of about $250 to $325 in that range. So if you kind of look at it, do the math backwards, if you're given $1,500 and you $300 in a case, now you've got about $1,200 to work with. And in those $1,200, what's the cost of the scope, right? And so if you're paying $80,000 for a Dudina scope and you want to, you know, make that money back in one or two years, well, then you got to do the math backwards. What, what is the, you know, cost per scope per case and all that sort of thing. And then your accessories. You know, so if you were to get a sphincter tome, most sphincter tomes are about $100, $150. You get a guide wear, it's about $50 to $100. You get extraction balloons, you get stents. All those things add up. And if you think about a metal stent, you know, you're usually about $2,000 for those. And so you would pay to do your procedure if you did an ASE. So you have to be very selective is what I'm getting at. You know, and what... I would recommend that you only do some cases that don't require sphincterotomies and don't require known stone extractions that don't require known stem placement. So you have to be very, very careful on which patients you pick. And I'll summarize that at the end. Outside of that, you also have to look at the health of the patient. You don't want to be bringing ASE three pluses to your ASC or morbidly obese patients for ERCPs because you know, you'll have to intubate those patients. And if you have to intubate them, then you are adding more cost. And anesthesia reimbursements are changing rapidly and they're getting to the point where, you know, if you're not careful, you could end up paying to do these procedures. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of a little bit on the, the cost of it. Now, the thing that's changed in the last... 10 years since I started kind of pondering this idea is the addition of disposable scopes. They're expensive. Um, typically, uh, Boston Scientific list price is around $3,000 for Exalt, and Ambu's list price is around eleven dollars or $1,200 for um, their duty to scope. And I'm just going to confirm that real quick. Bear with me. Awkward pause here for a second, and I apologize for that. Um, pretty awkward pause. Here we go. I, I take that back. It's $2,000. My apologies. So I'm glad I double-checked that. So the list price. Now, again, as with any device and any accessory, if you have good relationships with the industry or if you have good negotiators on your side, you can bring that price down depending on relationships and agreements and volume of other products you use. So... So there's always wiggle room with these companies, but you know you have to go by list because I don't know what my wiggle room is compared to yours, right? So um, yeah, the the uh, you're looking at about an average of twenty five hundred dollars, depending which company you go with, right? And so the good news is that Medicare did create a pass through code, which is a code that allows you to get reimbursed what you paid for on the disposable scope. Now, that's a Medicare thing, and a Medicaid patient, for example, would not probably benefit, depending on, I mean, every state's different, but in my state, they wouldn't. And not every private insurer is paying, at the moment, for disposable scopes. 
Now, the FDA did make that um, a ruling or a statement that, you know, there should be a movement towards disposable scopes. And so um, these things have to be considered. And, you know, we are heading in that direction. Um, I often say that once Pandora's box is open, you can't really close it. And so, you know, with the FDA kind of saying that, listen, we're going to encourage people to go to disposable scopes. Well, cat's out of the bag, Pandora's box open, whatever, um, you know, whatever state and saying you want to use, um, they're here and they're here to stay. And other companies are going to be manufacturing them. Olympus will get into the game. Fuji will probably get in the game. Pentax most likely. I'm sure Microtech at all will be getting into making scopes as well. And so once people start making these scopes, the cost will go down. And certainly the pass-through code probably won't stay. Um, if anything, you know, Medicare always likes to bring money down or cost down or what they spend. And so, you know, right now you have that option. So it's kind of a golden opportunity for people who want to get into ERCP and ASE because if you can pick the right patient, one that would have the scope reimbursed, one that is relatively healthy, ASA2s or less, um, like a one, or uh, at patients who are simple. So what I mean by that, you know, I don't think you should go take an ampullary mask to an ASC. I don't think you should be looking at a, a questionable stricture or clandiscope patient or somebody who needs EHL at the ASC. But what you can do, and, and, and this is where I kind of came up with a thought process, is you can do stent exchanges. There are stent removals. I want to tell a story here that is <clears throat> kind of highlights something that somebody told me once, and it really didn't sit with me well. In fact, I still, to this day, after hearing it 13 years ago, um, I still have a huge problem with this thought process. I know of a, a physician who told me that he puts a lot of stents in the pancreas and in the bile duct. And the reason he did it was to bring that patient back to the ASC so that he could do an EGD with a foreign body removal. I think that's not the right way to do it. Obviously, that's borderline unethical, basically is unethical in my opinion. But obviously, it's not something that I think anyone should do. But I started thinking about that. I said, you know, how many ERCPs have died in the United States a year? Probably about a million. And if you start looking at the number of plastic stents that are put in, you're looking at around 40 to 60% of those procedures. And this is just estimates. I don't have data to back this up. And I think each person who's listening to this podcast and taking the time to listen to it should kind of think of their own practice. But my point is, if you put a stent in, regardless if it's 30% of your procedures or if it's 80% of your procedures, you put that stent in for a reason. And so when you, if you put a stent in, I don't think it's fair to just do an EGD to remove the stent, personally. I mean, obviously, if it's a pancreatic stent and you're double-checking, you've done a KUB and it's still there, that makes sense to me. You're not going to go investigate the PD and ASC. But if you put a stent in a bile duct, then you put it in for a reason. And, and, and then you've got to get in there and take that stent out. But don't you owe it to the person? If you put it in because you're afraid of more stones getting in there, don't you want to do a sweep? And is it safe or fair or right to just do an EGD to pull the stent? So, so I think there's a lot of things to think about. But I think a significant number of these procedures could be done in an ASC safely. And they're quick. You know, and, and they're generally 8 to 12 minute procedures. If you're going to do that in the hospital, the patient's going to have out-of-pocket expense. The EOB is going to be about ten to $15,000. 
you know, and if you do it in ASC, it's kind of up front, you know, there's $1,500 our facility fee, and this is our anesthesia charges, and if there's pathology, it's this. So I think working through that and then also getting industry partners to kind of look at it and say, can we make bundles? You know, we have a stone extraction bundle, we have a stent removal bundle, which includes maybe a snare and a balloon and a, and a guide wire, you know. And obviously, you need to be in a surgical center in ASU that has the capability of doing fluoro. We're not at the point now, right yet, where we can do fluoro-less ERCPs in the centers. You could do them, but you'd have to invest in cholangioscopy, and right now the cost is prohibitive for that. So that's a conversation that can happen down the road. Um, my biggest caution, if you do consider doing this, is number one, always make sure you're doing it for the right reason. I mean, most of the people listening to this are diligent endoscopists, and there's very few people that I know in the GI world who are, you know, just looking to do procedures to make dollars, right? Uh, we're not all scoping for dollars. Obviously, we all know a person in our community or two people who are like that, but, you know, we ignore them. But, you know, pick the right case. Make sure the patient's healthy enough to do it. Um, make sure you understand what your local costs are and what the costs would be, and, and understand that if you're running a small business like an ASC, then what you spend and what you are um, receiving, you, you have to make that work for yourself and for your group. Um, and then obviously, you know, make sure you have support. What I mean by that is, you know, you're not gonna, hopefully you're not gonna pick cases that are high risk that are gonna end up in the hospital. You wanna go with uh, lower risk patients and, and you wanna go you know, with people who haven't had multiple bouts of pancreatitis, et cetera. So just make sure you, you understand that and also look at your local things. Is it better for you guys to buy a duodenoscope or is it better for you to look at this uh, new model with disposable scopes? And if you do, then make sure those patients are going to get it cut reimbursed because the last thing you guys want to do owning your own ASC is start doing ERCPs and then next thing you know, you're maybe you're saving yourself a couple hours a day, but you're also costing your business thousands of dollars. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my thought process. I, I think it's something that can be done. I've done three of them so far. Um, they have been reimbursed. They've done well. The patient, they were averaging eight minute procedures. The patients were extremely happy. Um, they went home without any complications. Again, that's an N of three. So it's not something that you should hang your hat on, or in my case, hang your turban on. But, you know, and my point is that it is something that we can start exploring. I do know centers. I do know of centers around the country, uh, in Houston and other places that are starting to do this. Uh, most of them are ASCs and not HOPDs, um, so that that's actually encouraging. I, I look forward to seeing what other people would comment about this. Um, again, it can be a controversial topic, but I think if you pick the right patient and you pick the right um, um, type of cases, you really, really can. Um, provide a service to your patients as well as your, your business, as well as making healthcare cheaper. You know, you're not having a patient or an insurance company pay tens of thousands of dollars for a procedure in a hospital, whereas they could be doing um, a lot less. So um, thank you so much. Uh, that concludes this episode. Um, as I always like to say, please make sure you support your societies that support your mission, whether it be ACG, ASGE, AGA, FIGHT, whatever it is. Um, support your society so that you know you can further your um, your your uh, practice of medicine, and then obviously for 
My other thing is mental health is a problem. Um, please always reach out to anybody if you're struggling. Uh, my Twitter at SethDaveMD or, you know, on the comments on this uh, podcast, I'm always available. And I know many people are as well. So um, thank you so much and uh, look forward to the next podcast. And please uh, like and If you listen this far, it means you like the podcast. And please give me a thumbs up or subscribe if you like. And um, I look forward to talking to you guys again next week.